Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Okay, welcome to today's event. Uh, my name is Professor Matthews. I'm an economics professor here at Kennesaw State University and director of our Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity, which is sponsoring today's guest lecture. <clears throat> our guest speaker today is uh, Dr. Chris Coyne. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University and the associate director of the F.A. Hayek program for the advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics at GMU's Mercatus Center. He has a PhD and MA in economics from George Mason University. His primary areas of expertise are in Austrian economics, political economy, and economic development. He serves as the co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics, the co-editor of the Independent Review, and the book review editor for Public Choice. He's written over 100 peer-reviewed academic journal articles in uh, leading outlets such as Public Choice, Defense and Peace Economics, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Journal of Private Enterprise, and the Cato Journal. Uh, so Chris, uh, welcome virtually to Kennesaw State University's Bagwell Center. Well, thank you, Tim, and, and thank you all for attending today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and the topic I'm going to talk about is the political economy of pandemics. And so unfortunately, it's it's quite timely. Uh, and before I proceed, let me just say a few words to, to set this up. The way I'm going to present this is in a manner that is highly uh, accessible to a, a range of uh, uh, backgrounds in economics. In other words, you don't have to have a uh, any kind of advanced understanding of economics in order to understand uh, uh, what it is that, that I'm going to talk about. And I think that's that's hopefully useful uh, to you all for, for two reasons. Number one, so everyone can hopefully get something out of it. But number two, I, I hope one of the things you'll walk away from this with is the power of the core economic way of thinking. That is the basic insights of economics and the power that they have to illuminate many, not all of course, but many of the issues that relate to uh, uh, contemporary issues and certainly issues that are of uh, immediate urgency and have real consequences for human welfare. Uh, and so while economics cannot answer uh, all questions related to these urgent matters, uh, what I want to impress upon you is that economics is one key uh, ingredient into our understanding of the complexities of the world in which we live. And so uh, let me uh, get into uh, the talk and let me provide a little bit of context. Uh, and and uh, I'm sure many of you already know this, but I think it's useful to, to start with it. Um, first, let me talk about kind of unpacking my title, the political economy of pandemics. So a pandemic is a 
epidemic of an infectious disease that affects people across borders. So uh, think about an infectious disease that, that affects people uh, to varying degrees uh, across geographic space. And so they're typically extremely widespread. They don't have to be worldwide, but they, they often are. So, so that's, the, that's our, our kind of point of analysis here. And then what tools are we using to analyze it? Well, there's a, a, a subfield in economics. It's a very small subfield, but it's called economic uh, epidemiology. And, and let's unpack each of, the, uh, of those. Uh, epidemiology is, is the branch of medical studies that focuses on disease. Uh, and more specifically, things like the causes of disease, uh, the uh, uh, incidence of disease, uh, how it spreads, uh, and how a, a set of various health-related factors and conditions uh, affect uh, human health and well-being. So it's a medical-driven, uh, obviously it's very important for understanding uh, things like COVID and other infectious diseases. What epidemiology does not do is it is not a social science. And so it does not provide insight into uh, uh, human beings and how they act within the set of overlapping systems within which they are embedded. For that, we need economics. Economics is the study of purposive human behavior where people are goal-oriented. So they have ends they seek to achieve, and they need to determine how to allocate scarce resources to best achieve those ends. And so how do they go about doing that? Well, we think about things like incentives. We think about things like constraints uh, and so on. And as I mentioned, we can use some of the core insights of economics, some of the, the things that you would cover in a principles class to think about pandemics. And let me explain how. To begin, let's think about what economics can help us understand with the problem of pandemics. One of the, the key problems with pandemics or, or with infectious disease from an economic standpoint is externalities. Now, an externality is a cost or benefit that is external to the person acting. So kind of the textbook example of a negative externality is pollution. A factory owner is producing something and pollution comes out of their factory and it affects the community. Why is this an externality? Well, the owner of the factory or the plant internalizes the benefit of production. They get to sell their, their product and keep the, the profits from that. So they, they internalize the benefit side. They internalize some of the costs. They have to uh, hire labor, uh, they have to, to cover their fixed costs of, of the building or insurance or whatever else, or licenses, whatever, whatever fixed costs are involved. But some of those costs, namely the pollution that is generated in the production of the good, falls on people in the community. That is, the owner of the factory is not breathing in all of the, the smoke and smog. So that's a, a negative externality. Something similar happens in the case of, of infectious diseases. It's called uh, uh, infection externality. And what is that? Well, certainly if you and I get infected, we internalize costs associated with that. But our behaviors also affect other people. If I am irresponsible and I infect someone else, even though they're acting responsibly, then I have shifted some of the costs onto them. Now here's the problem, like with all externalities. When individuals are making the choice before them, at the moment of choice, they weigh the costs and benefits that face them, but they don't take full account of the costs and benefits that fall onto others. So think about someone who is relatively, has a low risk profile as it pertains to COVID. 
they might be more willing to go out. They might be willing to go to the store. They might be willing to eat at restaurants to participate in social gatherings and so on. But then the, the reason, of course, they're more willing is because even if they are infected, the, the risk of doing serious uh, damage to their health is relatively low. But then when, if they interact with other people that are relatively high risk, they might very well infect them. And so our behaviors affect our own well-being, but that of others as well. And so as basic economics predicts, when there's a, a negative externality, uh, it's, you, you overall get a socially inferior outcome. Uh, uh, that is people engage in more uh, uh, risky behavior, if you will, or, or more cost generating behavior than they otherwise would. In principle, this leads to space for government to potentially intervene to internalize the externalities. Again, returning to the, the textbook example of pollution, uh, uh, what are the kind of standard solutions to this? Well, one might be a tax on the factory. One might be a regulation, which forces them to pollute less and so on. And so you could imagine the equivalent with infectious diseases. Now, here's the basic kind of model, if you will, or, or, or an illustration of the basic model that economists have when they think about infectious diseases. And it's based on the logic I just laid out with externalities. There's the equivalent of this public health brain. And this public health brain is kind of this all-knowing entity, government. And it's treated kind of as a, as a box. And government raises revenue, either through taxes or through issuing debt. Government, this thing we're calling government, then generates public health policy. It does so in the public interest. In other words, it does so to maximize social welfare. It takes steps to overcome the externalities that I just talked about. And it's a very clean process. It's a very linear process. Uh, uh, and this is the way that uh, uh, most economists uh, uh, kind of model and think about government as it pertains to infectious diseases. And it's the way that most people think about it. If you if you step back for a moment, they don't put it in, in economic terms. But a lot of people, for instance, get upset with government responses to COVID, whether it's at the state level, at the local level, or at the federal level. And they might say something like, well, if the Trump administration had done X, Y, and Z, things would be better. And that's conceptually possible, of course. But it also leaves open a key question, which is why didn't they do that? If people would have been better off under an alternative set of policies, why weren't those policies adopted? In order to answer that question, you need to analyze politics. You need to analyze the political decision-making process that generated the policies that did happen in order to understand both the existence of current policies, but also why alternative policies were not generated. And so, Kind of the underlying assumption of the, the standard or orthodox model is that government will do what people want it to do. That is, uh, 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 we assume that government is benevolent, other regarding, that cares about citizens and maximizing their welfare, that, that government has the, the knowledge to design and implement policies to maximize welfare, that government or, or people in government have the incentive to allocate those resources to maximize social welfare, and that unintended consequences, or I should say negative unintended consequences, will either be avoided or will be dealt with in order to minimize them. 
because of course, if, if you adopt a policy that causes people harm, uh, you could very well reduce their welfare, even though your intended policy is, is meant to, to improve their welfare. And so what I wanna think about in, in our time together today is how we can use some of the, the core insights from economics to analyze the policy making process itself. And so to, to go back for a moment, instead of assuming this public health brain, this kind of supercomputer that, that, that just generates policies that maximize the public interest, let's apply economics or the economic way of thinking to the government, to public policy. And instead of assuming that government is this entity that can kind of step outside of society and design and implement policy as we, the experts, see fit, economics shows us that that shows us that, that is often not the case. So in order to proceed, I'm going to address three kind of categories of challenges that policymakers face. And notice that these challenges are irrespective of political party or ideology. It does not matter if Republicans are in charge, Democrats are in charge, or anyone else is in charge. The same core problems exist. They must be dealt with. Now, different political parties might deal with those, those challenges differently. I'm not denying that aspect, but these challenges are ubiquitous when it comes to matters of public health. And so that's why it's important that we as economists have a say in the conversation and why understanding the economic way of thinking is so important. And so let's think about how economics can address or, or, or address some of these challenges. And the first challenge is what I call the knowledge problem or the knowledge challenge. And think about what policy must do. Well, policy in order to increase efficiency, in order to increase human well-being, needs to know what that human well-being entails and what policies would need to be adopted to maximize human well-being across the entirety of society. The way economists tend to set this up is this kind of a single economic problem that needs to be solved. And so this benevolent government can figure out how to maximize social welfare as if, as if the economy is a homogenous entity and there's a single solution to do that. If just a single set of policies are adopted, we'll maximize social welfare. But here's the reality of it. The reality is that life is a lot more complex and that number one, there is no single economic problem. That is, there's no problem for society of how to allocate resources for everyone. What I'm trying to say is each of us, each person that constitutes society, that constitutes the economy, has to discover how to best use scarce resources to satiate or satisfy our disparate ends, our diverse ends. In other words, we want different things. So the problem is, how are you going to about, go about doing this? And when you involve public policy, what ends up happening is you need to ultimately replace the individual valuations and goals of individual choosers and replace them with those of the policymakers. So the policymakers are going to have to decide what people want and what they're going to get. But just think about how hard this is. Let's think about the current pandemic. And someone might say, well, look, the goal is simple. We want to help people maximize their health. That's our goal. And you say, well, wait a second. People don't just value health. In other words, people, 
forget about the pandemics. Think about normal times because there's sickness around us all the time. There's flu, there's cults and so on. There, there's other sicknesses. We, we, all of us have some kind of mixed bundle of activities. We don't just sit in a, an isolated, sterilized room in order to avoid all sicknesses. We might take precautions against sicknesses. That can be basic things like washing your hands, um, eating healthy, exercising, or, or a host of other things. But we don't, we don't invest all our resources, our time, our effort, our life in general uh, in reducing our chances of getting sick as close to zero as we can. The reason, of course, is because we value many things. We value health on certain margins, but we also value food. We value being able to afford things like housing, like entertainment. We value human interaction with other people. And inherently, we realize there's a trade-off. Again, this is Econ 101, but it's a point that's often overlooked, which is you have to trade things off on the margin. If on the margin you stay home more in order to prevent yourself from getting sick, that means you can't do other things with the, that, those resources, your time. You can't interact with friends and family. You can't go to work, perhaps, uh, and so on. And so there's lots of different things we, we value on different margins. And of course, within each of the categories I list, there's different margins within each of those things. Food is not some homogenous lump. There's various margins. There's different types of food. There's different sources of food, quality of food, and so on. And so there's lots of trade-offs people have to make. And there's no way for a central health planner to access that knowledge and to solve the, the economic problem. Now, one response to this might be, okay, look, we're not going to try to maximize social welfare across the board. We're just going to try to combat COVID to the best of our abilities or whatever sickness it is we're talking about. But even here, there's still a crucial knowledge problem, which is that in order to do that, to combat a sickness, again, let's stick with COVID, in the most efficient manner, the public health planners still have to determine the opportunity cost of scarce resources. So think about how hard this is. Let's just think about one margin. Let's think about ventilators, all right, which are our, our key aspect for uh, uh, keeping people alive who are or are suffering the severe consequences from COVID. So there's some existing stock of ventilators right now across America. How should those be allocated? How should we determine who gets those those scarce resources? And you say, well, we'll just produce more of them. But how many should be produced? Where should they be produced? And how should those be allocated? And if we allocate scarce resources to producing more ventilators, what are we giving up? Are we giving up other goods and services that we value in combating COVID? In other words, we need to think about the trade-offs, the opportunity cost. Now take that same logic and apply it across all the different aspects of combating COVID. There's a, a personal protective uh, gear. There is medical staff. Some of them are medical doctors, some are nurses, some are emergency technicians, uh, and so on and so forth. And think about all the different various steps and resources involved in treating people. Think about the steps in producing tests and administering those tests and engaging in things like testing and tracing. These, each of these topics is really, really complicated. And then you have to think about, well, how are we going to make determinations about how those scarce resources are allocated? They have to be made one way or the other. And so the main takeaway of this kind of category of challenges, the knowledge problem, is that social health planners 
can increase predetermined amounts of outputs. That's what is possible. They can say, we want to produce more ventilators. We want to produce more masks. We want to produce more vaccines. These things are all simply outputs that are the result of investing more resources. But what they cannot do is maximize social welfare. There is no way for a planner to know if they're allocating scarce resources to their highest value use because there's no way for them to maximize the or, or to know that they are maximizing the opportunity cost of those resources. Uh, and uh, uh, that's OK. This simply places parameters on what can be accomplished. So step one is government planners can potentially increase predetermined outputs. Now we move on to step two, which is the incentive problem or the incentive challenge. So here's the thing. In, in order to determine what resources are, are, are allocated to increasing outputs and what outputs are produced and how they're distributed, that doesn't just fall from on high. It is filtered through a political process, but the political process is not that little box that I put on the screen towards the beginning. Think about politics in the United States. It is a complex, multi-layered process. There's the federal government. Think about everything that constitutes the federal government. Then there's state governments and local governments and so on. And each of these layers has numerous kind of sub-layers and interacting bureaucracies and elected officials and voters uh, and interest groups, uh, all influencing the design and implementation of policy. So again, it's not as simple as just some kind of expert stepping outside the system and saying, well, if you just did X, Y, and Z, then we'd be good to go because that's not how policy is actually designed or implemented. And so there's a, a field in economics called public choice economics. Uh, and what it does, among other things, is apply the tools of economics to various decision-making processes outside of market contexts. And politics is one of those. And so there are, are numerous insights from this field, but I'll just highlight a, a few of them. And, and again, I think that if you just look out the window or read the news, uh, you'll very quickly realize the importance of, of this way of thinking. And so one of the insights from public choice economics is that uh, uh, there is intense political competition among the various layers and levels of government when policies are determined. So again, in principle, if government was actually so, uh, 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 other regarding, so benevolent, cared about US citizens and worked together towards the common good, we would see things like the federal government and state level representatives uh, working together. But again, if you've been paying attention to the news, one of the, thing you, one of the things you've seen among many other things is political infighting. You've seen members of the federal government fighting with local political officials. You've, be, you've seen, uh, for instance, members of the Trump administration fighting publicly with governors, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, based on ideological or, or political party differences. Uh, and uh, when you have this infighting, uh, what does it do? Well, it kind of gums up the, the works, if you will. It gums up the formation and implementation of policy. Stated differently, the, the various parties that are supposed to be working together uh, are, all, are, are actually at odds. And in some cases, the policies adopted uh, are meant to punish political opponents. But who ultimately suffers? Uh, the citizenry suffers. And so you can see the problem. Interest groups. Uh, uh, look, anytime you design a policy that has 
uh, significant monetary resources tied to it, what, what economists call economic rents. Uh, interest groups come out of the woodwork. Uh, they're attracted to those profits like bees are attracted to honey. Uh, and they are going to attempt to influence, shape, uh, and manipulate those policies to benefit their members at the expense of others. Uh, uh, and again, if you go look at something like the CARES Act, which was, was the, the, the Stimulus Act, go, go look at the number of lobbyists that were involved in the, 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 the uh, kind of allocation of those funds. It is one of the most lobbied bills uh, in the history of America. Uh, and uh, that's very predictable. Again, if I said to you, look, the government is going to make trillions of dollars available. Uh, it's a pot of money that needs to be split up. Of course, people are going to try to influence how that, that money is split up uh, to benefit themselves and, the, and their friends and their colleagues. Uh, that, that's in their self-interest to do. Uh, but again, who doesn't benefit when this happens? Well, oftentimes, again, it's the broad populace. Remember that the, the postulated goal here is that government is supposed to be looking out for the interests of Americans, broadly understood. But if you start looking at how these policies are implemented and formulated, you see that it's anything but. The final point I want to make now for, for the sake of brevity is that the other aspect of this is, is the logic of government bureaus and government agencies. And government bureaus and government agencies, by definition, are nonprofits. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're not driven by profit and loss like for-profit firms in the private sector. But because of that, they are driven by maintaining a budget, by expanding their budget, uh, and by protecting their turf. Uh, and the way you do that is by creating demand for your goods and services, by excluding other agencies, by expanding the portfolio of activities that you undertake in order to create demand for your services, and so on. So what happens? Well, what happens more often than not is because of this, bureaus are extremely lethargic and oftentimes ineffective in providing certain outputs that are demanded by the populace, that are demanded by elected officials, and so on. Uh, and again, you can see this. If you go look early on in, in the COVID experience in America, and you go look at, at, at the CDC, uh, uh, at FDA, and so on, uh, and, and go read up about their, their testing protocol and the various problems with developing tests, uh, you'll see this exact logic. You'll see the, the perverse incentives that often operate in government agencies and bureaus. None of this, by the way, before I proceed, is to suggest any kind of nefarious motivations or actions on the behalf of those in government. So I, I'm not saying, to make sure I'm being clear, that government is populated by bad people that want to do harm to, to their fellow citizens. Instead, my point is that political institutions institutions, the arrangements within which human beings sit and operate, are such that there are oftentimes perverse incentives whereby the outcomes do not comport with the initial claim that government policy is going to further the welfare of society broadly understood. The other point I should make is that the claim is not that, that, that uh, uh, no one is made uh, or no one's welfare is improved by government policies. Of course, some people are made better off. Uh, uh, some people uh, receive certain things that, that improve their, their health. Uh, certain people receive certain financial benefits that make them, them better off. 
So it's not to deny that. Again, if government does stuff, of course, some people are going to benefit. The broader point is that the strong claim the government is somehow looking out for for the populace broadly understood that it has some notion of social welfare that it seeks to, to maximize uh, is simply not true uh, and, and does not comport uh, uh, either with theory uh, or with empirics uh, uh, when you when you look at it. And so the main takeaway of, of this challenge, the second of, of three challenges, is that policies that are meant to address public health crises they're not created in a vacuum. So it is from an economic standpoint, it is incorrect or perhaps incomplete is a better way to put it, to act as if policy is designed absent economic forces, absent things like incentives, absent things like uh, uh, knowledge issues that I discussed earlier. And instead of, of assuming that policy is designed in a vacuum, that we can just get whatever policy we want, one of the, the key insights of the economic way of thinking and one of the perhaps the most valuable thing we can offer as economists is to think about how different institutional arrangements within which public health officials are embedded will create things like knowledge constraints, will create things like perverse incentives and how those incentives will shape the policies that emerge. And again, that's the, the, the realm of economics. It's not the realm of epidemiology or, or any other area. That is what economics is all about. And, and identifying the various frictions, if you will, in the political process and what they mean for uh, well-intentioned uh, uh, people who want to help others who either are suffering or who might be suffering. And so uh, we want to take knowledge challenges into account and we want to take incentive challenges into account. Then we move into our third kind of category of challenges, which are unintended consequences. And, you know, look, one of the, the main insights of economics, this goes back to an economist named Frederick Bastiat. It was highlighted by a subsequent economist named Henry Heislett, is that we don't want to focus on just the seen, just the observable. That's important, but we also want to focus on the unseen. That is, we want to focus on the chain of consequences that a policy might have. And the art of economics is applying the economic way of thinking to understanding that chain of consequences, to thinking through how a well-intentioned policy is going to, inf uh, going to affect uh, uh, the social institutions, the economic institutions on which they are imposed. What I mean by that is how they're gonna affect incentives, for instance, how are people gonna change their behavior when you implement a policy. Again, that is the realm of economics. So the foundation of this, of the idea of unintended consequences, is that the world is a, a set of complex systems as compared to simple systems. And let me explain what this means because it's often neglected. A simple system is a, a linear system. Uh, you know, a plus B equals C. In, in plain English, a simple system is something that can be grasped using human reason. Uh, that doesn't mean that it is easy. Lots of simple systems are, are difficult. They require high levels of intelligence in order to understand, but they can be understood. So what are some examples? Think about a building. A building is hard to build, a building that stands. It, it requires engineers. It requires a significant amount of, of human intelligence and reason to design a building 
that can withstand things like weather. But it's a simple system. We have the engineering knowledge to sit down to hire engineers and to say, well, tell me how to build this building. And they can design it, they can get the inputs and they can construct it and be fairly confident that it will withhold or, or withstand uh, uh, many uh, natural forces uh, or a bridge. A bridge is the same kind of thing, really hard, but it can be built using human reason. Sending a man to the moon. People like to say that we sent a man to the moon, therefore we can do X. Well, not really. Sending a man to the moon is a simple system. Again, it's hard to do, but it is an engineering or technological problem that has been conquered using human reason. Okay, so those are simple systems. A complex system is different. A complex system is one where there are elements. Okay, and, and for, for economists, the elements are human beings, but it doesn't have to be uh, human beings. You can apply complex systems to lots of different things. But uh, the elements are interconnected and they're interconnected, meaning that when you intervene in one part of the system, it's gonna have effects in other parts of the system that you cannot anticipate. And that is because of the interconnection. You intervene over here and it has kind of ripple effects. The other aspect of it, of a, of a complex system is that the whole, so when we step back and look at it, the whole looks different than the individual components. So again, I know there's a lot of students listening that have studied economics to varying levels. And here's the, the easiest way to explain this, what I'm talking about with complex systems. I'm sure your professors have, or at least they should have, pointed out that, look, the phenomena or one of the phenomena is economics is like, how does stuff get there? Like we walk into a Walmart, we walk into a Target, we go on Amazon and there's all this stuff there and it's not centrally planned. That's the phenomena. What is, how did all that stuff get there? Well, there's all these individual actions. So people are acting purposefully. It's not like people are just randomly doing stuff. They're interacting with each other. They're pursuing their goals. And at one result of that is that it contributes to this broader order. That's what I'm talking about when I say the system as a whole demonstrates behaviors that differ from its component parts. In other words, when you and I purchase a cup of coffee, we are pursuing a goal. Presumably we want a cup of coffee and the associated caffeine. But none of us say, if I said, what are you doing? You wouldn't say, oh, I'm contributing to the broader order of economic activity in the coffee market. We'd say I'm purchasing a cup of coffee. But one of the things that emerges out of that, that purchase is contributing to the broader order of the coffee market, of the economy. So that's what I mean when I say the system as a whole demonstrates behaviors that differ from the components. Okay, so as I mentioned, this logic applies to lots of things. It's not just economic activity, although that's a very good example of it. The weather system is a complex system, which is why you know people tease weather people saying, oh, they can't predict the weather. Well, of course they can't predict the weather. It's a complex system. It is beyond the grasp of human reason and predictability by its very nature. So the best we can do is make broad pattern predictions, and we're often incorrect when, when the actual system unfolds. So here's the thing. Policies, whether they are health policies or otherwise, but we'll stick with health policies since that's what we're talking about today, are going to be necessarily simple compared to the complex system that they are imposed on. So that is, you're gonna get a group of experts that sit together and they design some policy. They think it's a good policy, but then it gets put through the political process. 
And that, pol that, that political process is going to generate the perverse frictions that we talked about a moment ago. And then some policy is going to get implemented. The other impact of that policy is that it is going to change the behavior of people in the system. That is, it's not like you and I and other human beings sit there like we're pawns on a chessboard that don't engage in choice, that don't respond to incentives. So again, you, you think about COVID. What are some of, of the list of, uh, of kind of unintended consequences? This is just a small list. Poverty. So go look at like World Bank reports on the consequences of the pandemic. They're going to be dramatic, or at least that's the forecast, on the poorest people in the world. Now, part of this is the result of simply people suffering, and that has real costs. So it's not all due to government policy, but government policies to address the pandemic have had real economic costs. Often they fall on the most marginalized people in society. If government says only essential businesses can stay open, what does that do? Well, by definition, it closes non-essential businesses. Now, let's say you are a worker who, who is relatively poor. You're right around the poverty line or below it, and you're unable to work. You can see how a well-intentioned policy is going to have the consequence of making you worse off on perhaps not the margin of getting sick from COVID, but of, of getting sick, uh, uh, harming your other margins of your life because of the lack of income. There's lots of, and we won't know the full impacts of these consequences for, for years, if not decades, but there's lots of discussion about education and child development. What happens when you remove a child from human interaction? What happens when you have education over Zoom as compared to in-person? What happens when you remove kids from simply socially interacting with other kids, which is where so much education takes place? It can have real effects. Mental health issues, suicide. All of these things are increasing in many parts of the world precisely because of the consequences of policies, which again are meant to help people fight COVID. Uh, issues of physical health. So uh, we have indicators of people not getting tested uh, uh, for uh, uh, various sicknesses that are, are preventable. They are not getting screenings. They are not getting vaccines for other illnesses because they're either staying home because government has issued stay-at-home orders or in many cases throughout America, government has placed limitations on what it considers non-immediate and non-essential medical services. Uh, and so you see increases in the number of people with strokes, with heart attacks, and so on. Uh, domestic abuse uh, cases have gone up uh, because people are, are forced into being at home. Uh, for those that are, are, are uh, suffering under an uh, abusive relationship, uh, it's much harder to leave. Uh, uh, when, when you are forced to stay indoors. Uh, fraud. Uh, when the U.S. government issued uh, stimulus under the CARES Act, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the amount of fraud uh, is significant. Uh, and you can look this up. Uh, the statistics are available out there. Uh, there's numerous scams uh, that are, are constant. And some of you might have experienced these. You know, I, I get various kind of robocalls on, on my uh, phone every day uh, with, with people uh, uh, trying to scam me. Uh, saying that they have money uh, that's owed to me from the government due to COVID, and, and all I need to give them is my uh, personal information, and they'll wire me that money. Uh, and so you can see how vulnerable people might fall prey to that. Uh, again, none of these, by pointing these out, none of them is meant to say, tell you what government should do. 
None of it is meant to say government should do nothing. I'm not taking a stance on that. I'm simply pointing out that one of the most powerful aspects of the economic way of thinking is to focus on both the seen and the unseen. And that we can help, we being social scientists, economists, can help policymakers, or as a citizen yourself, you can think through the various unintended consequences that might arise from policy. And where they do emerge is, do we expect government institutions to be able to address those adequately? So you can see why this might be problematic. Again, if the goal is to improve human well-being, to remove suffering, and you say, well, I'm going to I'm going to pass these and implement these various COVID policies. And then we say, well, wait a second. In doing that, it's true that you might make some people better off in terms of their experience with COVID, either preventing them from getting it or treating them once they get it so that they don't get severely ill. But what if I told you that doing that would lead to significant numbers of people suffering from mental health or, or suicide or domestic abuse? At what point would you make that trade off? So it's never simple enough to say, and I hear people saying this all the time, you know, we must prevent all deaths related to COVID. One death is too many. And perhaps, but that neglects the fact that there are costs to preventing all deaths and that you're going to lead to deaths on other margin or at least to, to significant human suffering. So we need to think about those trade-offs. And they're really hard to think about. I'm not saying they're easy to think about, but that doesn't mean we should pretend they don't exist. We should talk about them. And again, the role of the economist is to, at a minimum, point out that these things exist. So the main takeaway from this challenge, this category of challenge, is that you're going to intervene in complex systems. You're going to get system effects or unintended consequences, and you're not going to know all of them at the outset. And so one of the things we want to help policymakers think about as economists is here's what these unintended consequences might look like. There's going to be a bunch that emerge that we don't know, so be ready for it. And then when we think about the effectiveness of policy, of government, one of the things we want to think about is are they prepared to address that? And you know that addressing that, whatever that might be, that negative consequence can take place at different levels. You know, the, the, the federal government might be very poor, for instance, at addressing very localized issues of education uh, or mental health issues. So perhaps local governments are better or perhaps local governments bad at that as well. Perhaps we have to rely on other mechanisms. Perhaps we have to rely on things like charities, other nonprofits, uh, churches, uh, other organizational forms that allow people to resolve the various collective action challenges uh, that that uh, infectious diseases uh, create uh, for society. And so let me sum up and kind of tie this all together. So look, what, I'm, what I've tried to get you to think about today is that basic economic thinking, just some key insights, incentives, constraints, unintended consequences, the seen and the unseen, go a really long way in helping us clarify some of the key issues that relate to, to infectious disease or, or pandemics, both the current one, ones historically, and ones that will happen in the future. Doesn't answer all the questions, but it helps us shed light on some of the key issues. And one of those is that there's no abstract, ideal, benevolent government health planner. It just doesn't exist. And acting like there should be one is the wrong way of thinking about things because there can't be one. 
It's impossible. It's impossible because there is no way to avoid the knowledge constraints I talked about. There's no way to avoid the fact that we have political institutions that are gonna shape policies. Now, again, we can change political institutions. That's really hard to do, but even then it will still exist just in a different form. There's gonna be unintended consequences. Those are just the realities of life. Again, people oftentimes pretend they're not, but that's because they haven't fully internalized the economic way of thinking. So public health officials are embedded in those institutions and those institutions are going to influence for better or worse the three categories of challenges that I laid out. And so as you think about these challenges, as you think about these issues, I urge you not to think about, number one, don't assume them the way, away, but also don't think about them purely in terms of, of kind of political parties or right, left, or ideological kind of, uh, of, of debates that oftentimes these things fall prey to. Again, I'm not denying that different political parties would have different policies, or, or at least say that they would have different policies. But without actually thinking about how those policies are going to be designed, how they're going to be implemented, the real risk that we run is that you might end up doing real harm to people that are already suffering or already at risk for suffering. And so it's simply not enough to have good intentions or to say that you have good intentions. It's not enough to, you know, uh, to def define and design ideal policy uh, uh, to address health crises as if those policies can, number one, just fall from on high and then can be implemented as you wish. The, the difficult challenge is to unpack all the nuances and layers, all the trade-offs I discussed earlier, all the different political layers and, and incentives at work, and to think about how all of those different factors play into both the design and implementation of policy, as well as responses to negative unintended consequences that will certainly emerge. And so hopefully, the, if I've done my job, I've said some light on how economics can empower you, whether it is helping policymakers or if nothing else, being an informed citizen and being an informed citizen that unfortunately is currently embedded in a pandemic that presumably is not going away anytime soon. And so we need to be able to have an intelligent and co as complete as possible conversation about these various factors. And I think economics has a crucial role to play and hopefully you all do as well. So thank you all very much again for the opportunity to speak with you today. It's, it's truly been a pleasure. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I thought that uh, presentation was wonderful. Chris, uh, you noted in your talk that you know, clearly actual real world policies are, are hard to assess, especially because of informational problems and what have you. But so I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot a bit. Um, but if, if you'd maybe identify some actual policies that have been implemented over the last you know half year or so that you think are kind of some of the worst or perhaps some unimplemented policies that you think would have been better than what was actually done sure well that's a great question and I'm, I'm going to be put on the spot and then, and then try to strategically avoid being put on the spot <laughs> and here, here's why it's not that I'm trying to avoid the question because I don't want to answer it. It's because I don't know the answer. But here, here's some of the things I think are problematic, uh, and then, and then potentially good as well. So the the problematic side, I think anything. So recognizing that externalities exist does not mean that any government policy 
is a good one to address it. Not just because governments fail, but because we have to recognize that externalities occur at different scales. So there's not just one externality that affects everyone equally. It affects different people differently. And so I think any kind of top-down blanket policy that affects very broad geographic regions, the, the highest region being the nation, and then whether it's state level um, or even lower, I think are typically bad policies. So let me give you an example. I live in Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, DC. You know, a couple hours south of here in Southern Virginia, so I live in, you know, Northern Virginia is a very densely populated area. The challenges that, that face my fellow citizens of Northern Virginia are different than those that face people in Southern Virginia. Again, a couple hours south of, of where I am. Just like, you know, the challenges that face people in New York City are different than the challenges that face people in upstate New York. Just because the areas are different, the prevalence of the spread of COVID is different and so on. And so even at that level, kind of bl blanket policies of these are essential or non-essential businesses uh, and so on, I think are, are problematic uh, because they don't allow people to respond to local conditions. And so in, in technical econ speak, what you would want to do is align policies with the at the lowest level where the externality is, uh, the scale of the externality. In other words, that's just saying appreciate local conditions to the extent you can. So though, you know, I, I was troubled when those kind of things happened. Um, and, and in terms of good things, you know, I think that, you know, areas where people had the ability to have freedom uh, to adapt and to engage in various types of uh, kind of entrepreneurship. And I use that term broadly because usually you think about entrepreneurship like coming up with some new product and service. And there is that, of course, but I mean entrepreneurship and kind of their ability to come up with the ways to adapt human life to deal with um, the, the various challenges that are posed by uh, uh, COVID. Uh, I think th those are good policies. Um, uh, of course, abroad, you know, I'm highly troubled and, and we have some of this domestically, but certainly not like in countries in China. You know, I'm, I'm troubled where there are severe government crackdowns where there is kind of detailed surveillance uh, of people, uh, uh, whether, where people are forced to, to kind of have tracking devices, whether it's through their, their smartphones or, or, or in some cases, and even in some states this happened, I know, wearing like monitoring devices. Um, states in America, I mean, um, in the Midwest, I remember reading a couple of cases. And so I'm highly uh, uh, troubled by, by that just because I think the, you know, the trade-off in terms of uh, uh, human liberties um, are severe in those cases. Um, but again, you know, people can disagree on that. Some people are willing to trade off those liberties. And so those are some general thoughts without answering your question on, on kind of concrete specific policies, because I don't think there are any. And I think that's okay to admit, by the way. I think a lot of people don't want to admit that, but I think that's okay to admit. Um, actually, I guess related to that, I guess I'll, I'll pose an alternative policy that I don't know was implemented anywhere in the U.S., but to me, and it, as an economist, you'll appreciate it's completely motivated by kind of the standard potential policies to correct for negative externalities. Um, but in jurisdictions where, say, there had been kind of you know, blanket shutting down of things like grocery stores and restaurants and other businesses, um, what would your thoughts have been if instead, say, the government had gone the route of implementing something like a you know, flat rate kind of Pigouvian tax of, okay, yeah, if you want to come in and shop at the Publix, um, you have to pay $5 upon entry. 
and that tax revenue will go to the government. Um, again, because broadly, again, econ students, you should know tax something, you get less of it, right? So if we had the government taxing entry to a grocery store, taxing entry to a restaurant, we'd get fewer people uh, going to those establishments. Again, the tricky part is knowing how big or small to make the tax to get the socially efficient uh, number of people coming. But to me, it at least seems a little more flexible than kind of a, a blanket shutting the restaurant down. Sure. I mean, so you're exact. You're exactly right. You get clearly get less of whatever behavior you taxed on the margin. The the problem, as you correctly identified, which is of course well known among economists, is determining the the size of that tax is extremely difficult. It's impossible to do. Actually, people pretend it's not, but it's it's you cannot determine. The problem is, from an economic standpoint, you might say, well, who cares if they if they make a mistake in estimating the size? Well, if you if you tax too much. Of course, you have to know what the optimal behavior is in order to get to, to determine the tax in the first place. But you you run the risk of overtaxing, if you will, of taxing too much, and then you you have inefficiency in the opposite direction. I think that perhaps a better you know to the extent government has a role. Well, I guess, and partly, I'm I would sorry, say that that's why I think that policy is better than the blanket shutting down of the establishment, because in essence, the blanket shutting down of the establishment is, as I would view it. An infinite tax. Oh sure, sure, right. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You're certainly right about that. That's that's the yeah. That's that's the the extreme, the limit. So so your point's well taken. You know, I I think the other thing, um, you know, is is information sharing, and so you know. But again, you run to issues with with. So you might say like, look, one of the things government might do because they have access to expertise is to share the latest. And I realize it's it's. It's you know information is emerging as the pandemic unfolds. We don't have perfect information about this disease, about treatments, about the health consequences, and we, we won't for decades probably. But you know you might say, well, look, government can share information, whatever that is, about the conditions. Um, but even that's hard because everything gets so politicized. So remember, like you know, if you go back and look, th there was flip flopping on mask wearing. Originally, it was, well, you shouldn't, you don't have to wear a mask. This was coming from government officials, and it wasn't Donald Trump saying it. It was uh, medical officials. Uh, and then it turns out they were saying that because they, you know, they were worried about medical personnel having the masks. They didn't want people to run out and buy up all the masks. It's like, okay, I understand that. But then, you know, then you come back and say, well, masks are, are the, one of the lowest cost ways to, to stop the spread, right? And Again, that implicitly involves trade-offs, right? You're, you're basically lying to citizens in order to get them to, to engage in less of the behavior, but you're also causing harm to them because you're making them more vulnerable. But, you know, providing information like, what is it that we know about the disease and where is it that you're most likely to catch it? And again, that doesn't solve all the problems, but it might be the best we can do. Like, I, you know, I'd rather people be informed when they're making decisions about what they're going to do as, as not being uh, informed. And, you know, ultimately, in a country the size of America, in a country where we, you know, there's freedoms, so unless you really have some kind of authoritarian crackdown, you need people to voluntarily buy into things. Because people can, and you've all seen this, people can wear masks, even if you have a mask mandate, but they can pull them down below their nose. They can not wear them. They can have fashion masks that have little holes through them because that's like the design. And this is just show, right? It's just, it's it's nonsense. Uh, uh, it's not actually doing anything, or, or, or if it is doing something, it's severely limited. And so you need people to voluntarily comply. But the other thing I wanna mention very quickly, if I can, is, you know, one of the other phenomena that I don't think gets enough discussion because it's not 
some kind of, it's not like an equivalent of like a, a, a stimulus of $2 trillion, is that if you look around the country, in, in your own community, I'm sure some of you are involved in this, there's people, just citizens, normal people that are helping out other citizens. They are figuring out solutions to collective action problems that are localized. You know, I've read stories here in my community of people delivering groceries to people, um, people standing outside the window of shut-ins to give them social interaction or having Zoom calls with them or having like these game nights where you, you know, you can set up your iPad and then your kids are sitting there and then people that are shut in are on the other end and they get the interaction with people. And there's lots of other cases, you know, food, uh, 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 food for people that are, are, are suffering because of, of lack of income or access to, to food. So we have food insecurity. And none of these things are planned. They don't require state mandates. And whether that's enough to deal with all the challenges, I don't know. But I think that's a very under kind of discussed aspect of this. And you can't add those things up. They don't make national headlines because they're relatively small scale. But, you know, people have this entrepreneurial ability to and desire to want to help other people that are suffering. And so I think that's a key aspect of this as well. So one of the things I always try to think about before we go to government, because collective action problems are all around us, and the existence of a collective action problem does not de facto mean government, because, again, government creates a whole new set of collective action problems, like monitoring and punishing government when they don't do what you want them to do. But nonetheless, there's all these little opportunities and people doing things. So the question is, can people solve the problem on their own? And are we confident that they can or cannot? And then what does that mean? And so that's another aspect of, of this as well. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, greatly enjoyed your presentation today and uh, thought it was fantastic. All right. Thank you all very much. Take care, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.